Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? It's Scott Groves here with my brand new friend of about eight minutes ago, Ryan King. Uh, but the bottom line is when Matt Bedreau says, hey, I know a really good guy you should interview, <clears throat> well, then you interview that guy. So if you haven't had a chance to go back and watch our episodes with Matt Bedreau, uh, Matt's basically recommitted his life to whether it's Apogee Strong or whether it's the Acton Academies for young kids that he's trying to help people found. Um, he's really rededicated his whole life in the pursuit of helping uh, young kids and especially young men. And when I said, hey, who else do we need to interview who you know who's an interesting cat? He said, oh, you got to hook up with my friend Ryan King. Just started doing some good stuff online. So, of course, I look him up online and all of his kind of inspirational quotes, his his role model type persona uh, really resonated with me. And I'm like, yeah, this is good stuff. We got to have this guy on. So we reached out. And I when I asked Ryan, so what's your bio? He's like, well, uh, started a tech company uh, called Gord, uh, Guardian Payments. Uh, then I retired at 35 because that seems to be what people do when they own a uh, residual payment company or they invested well in real estate or trailer parks or storage. And then at 35, you're like, well, I can't retire. I can't like do nothing. Uh, and you said something really profound, which you said, hey, man, I'm not a coach. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a guru. I just want to be a good role model. And so, Ryan, welcome. First of all, what did I miss in the 60-second Reader's Digest bio? And then what can you tell us about, you know, quote-unquote, just being a role model? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you missed anything important in the 60-second. Oh, I forgot. Wife, kids, animals? Like, what's your what's your yeah, home I've, life look like? I've been married for 14 years. Uh, just had our 14-year anniversary. And then I've got two boys, and they're uh, 11 and 13. So, Whew. I spend most of my time on, yeah. Didn't get a lot of alone time before the kids came along, huh? No, we actually got pregnant before we got married. So it was, I got thrown into the deep end. Like I had to, it was like full blown, like you're a grown ass man. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the party. Yeah, that, that'll happen. Everybody thought that that was my wife and I's story because we got married at the park and then she got pregnant like 30 days later. And when we told everybody they were pregnant, they were like, you were lying. She was pregnant before you guys got married. I like, I know, I swear to God. It was like within the thir first 30 days, we were taking care of all of our marital business and apparently 25-year-old Hispanic ladies get pregnant pretty fast, faster than I realized at 36. Well, there you go. Yeah. See, see, we got lucky, man. Um, yeah. So tell me about that. Cause I think that's such an interesting, you know, I'm not these things. I just want to be a great role model. So how does one, you know, effectively retire from the business you've created and start to live off residual income and stuff. And then say, man, chapter two of my life, I, I just want to be a role model for people. Like, can you walk us through that journey a little bit? Yeah. I mean, when I retired, you know, at 35, I mean, it wasn't like it was a decision that I made, like where I said, Hey, I'm retiring. It was just kind of a situation where, you know, for the first 10 years of running the business, it was just putting out fires constantly, you know, and then finally I, I bought the business from the guys that owned it at, at the time when I started. And then once I bought it, I was in a hurry to hire people to, to help me run it because I've been working like a hundred hours a week, you know, and then, but at 35, I kind of looked up and realized like, damn, nobody needs me anymore. <laughs> right. You've, you've, you've you know? replaced yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I didn't really, it was kind of jarring, you know, because ever since, you know, I had kids, it was just a constant frantic, <laughs> you know, you know what that life is like. So totally. Uh, um, I'm 38 now. And so just the last few years, especially with COVID and all that, um, it just got really hard for me to sit on the sidelines and, and the people who, who did have a voice and who were, you know, influencing culture, especially, especially men, 
young men. Um, I just got to a point where I was like, you know, I, I'm really not that qualified to be, you know, telling men how to live, but I'm better than these guys. <laughs> you know? Right. So <laughs> I'm going to say what I have to say and see if it, see if it resonates with people, you know? And, um, and that's really when I talk about being a role model, you know, it's like, we have enough celebrities and rock stars and gurus and all that stuff. Um, what we don't have is there's a lot of men and what I found and a lot of women too, that just never had a good, healthy, masculine presence to teach them just really basic stuff, you know? And, and I, you know, when I think about that term role model, it's synonymous with fatherhood, you know, like as a dad, you can tell them a lot of stuff, you know, but what they're really doing is modeling after the way you conduct yourself. And so a lot of what I'm doing in my writing is, is really the same lessons that I want to make sure I teach my sons. And some of them are too advanced for, for their age. You know, they're, you know, my younger son's only 11. So a lot of this stuff is too advanced for, for him, you know, but uh, yeah, that's really, really what I'm trying to do. And kind of the feedback that I've gotten a lot of is, you know, there's just a kind of a father energy about what I try to promote. It's just, you know, in my head as I'm writing, I, I, you know, imagine that I'm writing to, you know, my younger self or my, or my kids or just, you know, just basic lessons of, of manhood and, and life and business and marriage and fatherhood and, you know, all those things, just because a lot of, a lot of young guys and a lot of young women have just never had any access to what a, just a normal dude is like, <laughs> you know, like they didn't have a dad at all. So they don't know how to relate to relate to men and you know a lot of women have haven't had good partners didn't have involved dads and so they don't they don't even know you know what to expect from a man you know in a relationship and so i've gotten that feedback a lot of um it's just very practical and approachable um, and i try to really just live in front of in front of people and say this is what life is actually like for me and um i really think a lot of the reason it's taken off on my page is just the timing. You know, I think people are tired of all the doom and gloom and anything wholesome and, and uplifting and encouraging is just like a breath of fresh air in a, in a way today that might not have been the case, you know, in the past. You know, first of all, before, you know, for the people that are listening, where can people find you on Instagram so we don't forget about that? Yeah, yeah it's uh, at the wisdom of kings. At the Wisdom of Kings. So we'll make sure that that goes into the show notes and all the places. Ryan King, at the Wisdom of Kings. And I've got to ask, what what you're describing of, of you know, having this passion to, to put up information and kind of model for men and women what a, what a good man can be, it sounds to me like this calling, right? And people will have a religious calling. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends that are Mormons. They had a calling to go on their mission. People that, you know, join the join the church or become missionaries or become pastors. It, it sounds like a calling. And usually when I hear somebody passionate about a calling, it's because of a religious reason or a political reason, or there's some guilt, you know, 20 years after their kids have left the house because they were absentee fathers or their dad wasn't there or, you know, they're just, there's just some deep seated, whether it's trauma or calling that makes them passionate about this particular topic. Is there something in your life that you can point to? Was there a, a religious experience an awakening, uh, you know, a challenged relationship with a, with a father figure in your life? Was there something that called you to this or was it like, it just, it just became. I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I was called into it. I feel like I was pulled into it reluctantly. 
you know, because, you know, for me, I was kind of at a point in my life where, you know, I had made it, <laughs> you know, like I don't have to worry about money anymore. And it's, you know, I have, I have that capacity in my life to do what I want to do. And all of a sudden I just, just bring, and I'm sure most people, you know, listening to this can, can relate. you know, it's hard. It's hard to listen to what's going on in culture on Twitter or on the news or in any form of media or whatever, and not find yourself like having fake arguments with people in your head. <laughs> totally. You know what I mean? And it's like that had kept happening to me so much that it was just like, all right, I guess, I guess I've just got to speak up because nobody else is going to. So for me, I don't, I'm very reluctant. I don't really enjoy it. The, attention and the, and, you know, the fame and all that stuff. Like I've always been very reserved. Even when I was building my business, I never promoted my, myself, you know, it's, um, but, you know, I've been talking to a lot since I've started getting into this world, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people that feel that same reluctance because I think one of the things I'm finding is that most decent people that have, you know, that are well-balanced mentally, they don't really want to be famous. It's usually only like the people that are like sociopathic egomaniacs that are like, Hey, look at me, you know? And the downside of that is that if the regular people don't reluctantly contribute, then the void just gets filled exclusively with people with bad intentions. Yeah. And, and I'd love to ask you about that because, you know, we were talking a little bit offline before we started that, you know, whether it's the celebrity or the the famous people on social media or, you know, glamorizing the the hustle culture, right? Like you obviously you obviously exemplified that hustle culture. Of, you know, you said I was working 100 hours a week and trying to figure things out to grow my business. You know, you have a certain look about you, like the flat brim hat, the beard, the tattoos. Um, what is it that you don't like about that online persona of the famous person, the celebrity who just happens to be a social media celebrity or that hustle culture or whatever it is online. What do you dislike about the, the fakeness of that? And then what are you trying to bring authentically to the, to the scene? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't, I think what I dispute is the lack of nuance around those topics because, you know, there's a time to grind. But then I also, as a guy that's done the grind and a guy that knows a lot of, you know, all of my, my business is B2B, you know, so I don't, I don't deal directly with consumers. I deal with business owners, you know, and so I, I have some insight into that grind mentality that a lot of people don't have. And so for me, I think what I, what I don't like about that is the pretentiousness behind it, you know, and the glorifying of it just for the sake of it, as opposed to it being necessary at times. Because if you grind forever, you're going to break down. You know, like I had a severe nervous breakdown, you know, about a, a year and a half ago where my nervous system was just shot and there was nothing wrong. It was just like, you know, that feeling when you have a nightmare and it's like you're afraid of a cloud. It's like complete terror. And it's like nothing to actually be scared of, but you still feel it. Like that's what I felt like every day for about five months. Holy shit. You know, all like, yeah, I mean, I would, I would wake up from a nightmare. I would legitimately have a nightmare, but that feeling of terror that I had, I would wake up and it wouldn't go away. And this is like, 
this is only a year and a half ago. So this is after you've pretty much quote unquote made it in the tech business. You've paid your dues. You've got this fancy room with all the books behind you. Your kids are in good health. Like, did you have a, did you have a reason to have a mental breakdown? You know, where you, where things challenged at work or with your spouse or whatnot, or was it just an overload of 15 years of, of stress? I think it was a lot of things, you know, I mean, I, I ended up finding out I have some health issues that I have to manage, you know, um, that are, you know, kind of on a different topic, but you know, the common thread that I've found is that what people don't tell you about the grind culture is that as a man, when you wrap your identity up in that, at some point as men, it's easy for us to be ambitious, right. And to be goal oriented. And especially men, you know, I was a college baseball player, so I've, I very much have always been able to go out and set a target and go accomplish it. What people don't tell young men, especially, is that for every man at some point, you're going to reach a point in your life where whatever you're aiming at, you, you get so used to hitting that target that you tie your identity to it. And inevitably, at some point, you start aiming at things that you can no longer hit. You either run out of time or you run out of energy or you run out of money. And it's some, you know, it's just like, it's no different than a basketball player that's been able to dunk it on a 10 foot goal his whole life. You know, he raises the goal to 11 feet and he can dunk on that too. But eventually I don't care how high you can jump. You're going to push that goal up to a point where you can't dunk it. Cause everybody in real life has limitations. Doesn't matter how badass you are as a dude. And nobody wants to admit that publicly because it's not manly, you know, but what happens and I've seen it with myself, I've seen it with countless other men is that eventually when you stop being able to hit the targets that you, that you aim at, and we all reach that point, you have this break in your mind and, and you, and you go through typically an intense depression or you start doing, using substances, you know, like Adderall or cocaine to keep going, or you start using substances like alcohol or marijuana to cope, right? Like there's not a healthy outlet for that. And so that's one of the things I encourage. And, you know, the other thing that I really, that I really try to do, you know, is I, I had a guy that reached out to me through Instagram and he told me this story and it really just broke my heart, you know, because he's a 19 year old kid and his dad just died six months ago. And he messaged me. He said, man, I feel like I'm such a bitch. I said, you know, what's, you know, what's going on? He said, well, I'm 19. My dad died and my mom is on drugs and I have three little brothers and sisters at home, you know, three younger siblings at home. And it's my job to take care of them now. And I'm working two jobs to take care of them. And I just feel like such a bitch because I have to get drunk to go to sleep every night because I'm so stressed out. And I'm just like, man, how bad have we screwed up as men? That, that dude doing that. I mean, that's, that's, that's grown ass man stuff. Yeah. Taking that, you know, that's like great that he, depression, world war two dad died at war. And now I got to raise the kids. I mean, that's, yeah, that's right? some heavy shit. That's heavy shit. That's, that's about as manly a thing as a man can do. Right. And somehow he, he feels like a bitch. So what are we doing wrong as men and how we're discussing life and issues that a man that's doing something that, a 45 year old man might have trouble with yeah at 19 feels like he's a bitch to me that says a lot about we're not being authentic enough as men and honest enough as men about yeah grind grind culture is great man and i'm not saying be lazy i mean you don't get to where i'm at in life by 
by sitting back and being lazy, but the not sharing what real life is like and not saying, you know what, I don't care how much of a man you are. Every man can have something put on him that's too heavy for him to carry that just knocks him flat on his ass. And every man, if he's really pushed himself to be the best man he can be, has had seasons in his life where he got laid out flat on the ground and he's having trouble getting back up. Yeah. And, and you, not, a, not a being honest about that, being pretentious. I, I want to pull on that thread a little bit of, you know, may, maybe you were particularly well equipped to deal with this. Ironically, you're the third baseball player we've interviewed who played high level college ball. And uh, two of the three, very, very successful from day one, went, you know, substituted the athletic aspirations with business aspirations. One of them was very transparent on our podcast about the substance abuse that followed and, you know, really yep. realizing that in AAA ball, he never gave it his best shot because he was coping with alcohol and drugs and painkillers and all that stuff. Do you think there was something about, and I, I don't know how good you were in college, but was, the, was there something about giving up that goal of being a baseball player or did you have a chance of going pro or did that mess with your mind? Did it, did it help you in your business career? Cause I find people that play like division one athletics or they were wildly successful in high school or college at sports. It goes one of two directions. It's a, it's a great fuel and it's a great lesson for, you know, future, future obtaining of goals. I messed that whole sentence up, but you know what I mean? Or it goes the other direction where it's like, oh, I failed at this. I'm going to failure, be a failure the rest of my life. And there's a lot of self-destructive tendencies. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, for me, I was ready to be done. So when I played in high school, I was, I was a really, I was a really good high school baseball player, American Legion baseball player. Um, but I didn't, I didn't just pitch. I was a pitcher in college, but in high school, I, when I wasn't pitching, I was playing multiple positions and, you know, at the end of games, I was dirty and scraped up and beat up. And, and I liked that, you know, uh, when I played in college, I was just a pitcher and it, I, I didn't enjoy it at all because it's like, you know, it was a full-time job, you know, 50 hours a week. And I only got to pitch once a, once a weekend, you know, so it's like the rest of the time I'm just sitting there doing nothing. And for me personally, I didn't have that struggle of feeling like a failure because I chose to quit. Like I hung it up voluntarily. I was like, I don't want to do this. You know, I was playing semi-pro. I was playing in like a field <clears throat> league um, for like potential draft picks. Yeah. And I just, I was miserable, you know, but I had other interests. You know, I was, I was also, you know, you can see behind me, I've got all these books. Like I'm also a nerd, you know, I love to read and I'm, just, you know, and I, so I was, I was never the guy that my whole identity was wrapped up in baseball, uh, but a lot of guys who were, and they could definitely. And, um, but to answer your question, there's so many lessons that I learned from all that. I mean, as I got out into the business world, I mean, it's like I had a superpower for the people that hadn't played sports, you know, because like failure didn't bother me. And this never even crossed my mind if I tried something and it didn't work. It didn't cross my mind to like feel sorry for myself or, you know, question if I'm any good at it, you know, because like as a pitcher, like I fail a lot. Guys hit the ball all the time, you know, right. I, I, walk, I walk people and, you know, it's like, there's all kinds of stuff. And so just having lived as a, as a pitcher, you know, for, I don't know, I played until I was 22. So probably 10 years really competitive. There's just many of the things, even now, when I write on Instagram, that people write me about that they're struggling with like fear of failure, or, you know, putting too much pressure on themselves or whatever. 
Like that hasn't even crossed my mind as a teenager. <laughs> you know, like when you're pitching on a baseball mound, like you don't get to like hide if you make a bad pitch. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to walk off the field and go sit in the dugout. Like you, you're out there by yourself. Everybody's watching. You got no choice. You just got to try again. You know? Yeah. Somebody hits a so, dinger. You can't just, uh, you can't hide behind yeah. uh, third base. You, you, yeah, you can. You just got to, got to make the next pitch, you know? And so I think lessons like that were just absolutely imperative. You know, so much of what I was able to accomplish in my life post sports, I can directly, you know, tie back to the lessons I learned from sports, you know, but I think at the same time, like with my kids, it's like that, that doesn't need to be your whole interest. You know, you've got to have other interests because, you know, one of my best friends was in the major leagues for 15 years. He just retired two years ago. And, you know, the other night I had to help him with how to do a spreadsheet. Right. <laughs> he had no, he had no life skills, you know, and he's just now starting. And he wasn't a guy that made book as money. You know, he was, a he was the minimum, league minimum guy, you know, he made 300 grand a year, you know, which is good money, but it's not enough that he doesn't have to work. Yeah. It's so not, it's not 15 million a year generational wealth no, type money. No, not at all. You know? So like as soon as he retired, he had to go get a job, you know? So he's just now going through the phase of life at 35 or at 38 that I was going through at 25, mm-hmm. you know? And so for me, um, I'm really glad that I hung it up when I did. I know a lot of guys who held on, past the point you know like for me i i could have gotten drafted like i've got a, a reel on my instagram you know I, I threw 94 miles an hour still like three weeks ago jesus know, like, dude yeah i could you know I, I could have gotten drafted you know but i would never have been good enough to be like definitely in the major leagues you know right. what i mean like if i would if i would have been one of the guys that was like a surefire major leaguer i would have kept playing it but it's like if i got drafted you know like i was about to get drafted it was going to be in like the 50th round Right, right. You know, it's like, I'd have been in the minor leagues for eight years. It's like, no, <laughs> I don't want it that bad, you know, to you know spend 10 years to maybe spend six months in the big leagues. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, I've got two funny stories about sports in that way. I've got a buddy um, who is an old manager of mine in the mortgage space. He has one inning of stats for the Oakland A's. Uh, played played at USC, played on you know the up and comer, the farm, the double A, the triple A for five yeah. years. Gets called up to the majors, I think, because he was a left hander and he had some weird pitches. Like he couldn't throw the heat, but he had some weird pitches. He goes in for like you know spring training. You know he's around, kind of hanging around as a reserve guy for the first couple weeks of the season. They put him in. He gets lit the fuck up for like an inning or two. Drop back down to the farm team or AAA or whatever it's called, and uh, you know, kind of just proceeded to wash out from there and be like, dude, I'm not, I'm not. I saw what the major leagues were like. I'm not working for twenty bucks a game, so I'm gonna go get a real job. So that's one funny story. And then you know, you mentioned the athletes who have to get a job right after they exit, you know, the major leagues. I think we see all these contracts on ESPN, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. There's thousands of quote unquote professional athletes where. You know, I've got a buddy that played wide receiver uh, in the NFL. He um, won a Super Bowl with the Patriots, and this is all public knowledge, so he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't feel bad me saying this. But you know, over eight seasons, he made like ten million dollars, which sounds like a lot until you're like, well, you know, your agent got five percent, and your lawyer got two percent, and your accounting got one percent, and then at that income level, you're taxed at forty percent. So maybe I netted you know four or five million over eight years. Spent some of it because I was hanging out with. Um, you know, guys that were balling out of control, making that kind of money per game. Uh, And then, you know, you get out and you're like, oh, 
my entire junior high, high school, college, 20s was given to this game, and I've got a $2 million nest egg to start my life at 30 years old without a whole lot of skills. I mean, it's it's devastating. Like, it, it can be really devastating for these people. So uh, do you maybe one day see that as an angle of, like, people you could serve or help these, you know, former either college or professional athletes that are that are a little lost? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I definitely think so, you know. And, I, and you know, I, I see that same thing happening in business. You know, you know, so to use the to use the sports analogy, right, like as a baseball player, I use a baseball analogy. Like when we watch the highlights, all we see is the guy hitting home runs. You know, we don't see the guy that goes up there and just gets a single. That guy doesn't get endorsements. Nobody buys this jersey. And so that, you know, nobody what we do, what we do a really bad job of as a society is we only look at we want to be the guy that on the highlight reel. And we're not willing to do the basic the basic jobs, you know that aren't necessarily going to get the glory. And I, and I see the same thing happen with a lot of young guys in terms of their career or money. You know, it's like the only business people we hear about are the one that start some startup and set it for 35 million or a hundred million or whatever. Right. So every young guy is out trying to start this thing. that's like, you're going to swing for the fence and hit a home run because that's all you see is the highlights, you know, and in reality, most, most people that have decent money, or even wealth, um, to unsex to do it, you know, like it, it sounds, you know, my life now sounds sexy, the business that I do, like nobody's like, nobody even knows around where I live. Like nobody even knows who I am, you know, right. And like as I was up building it, it was like, yeah, it sounds glamorous, but like in reality, I was like wearing a suit and I was going in, like I, I sat down and I was talking with people that were like in greasy, tire shops and they were smoking cigarettes and blowing cigarette smoke right in my face so that I could make 75 bucks a month. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's easy to, you know, get attached to the highlights and, and, and think that the only way to be successful is to swing for the fences on everything. But in reality, you know, you can be really successful just hitting singles, just go do basic stuff and just do it over and over again. And eventually it'll work. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder about that. Um, Gary V, who's probably the pinnacle of the online persona hustle culture. He does have some good stuff that he talks about. And he talks about business owners having to spend a certain percentage of time in the clouds and in the dirt, right? It's like, you got to have the strategic vision. You got to be hiring ahead of demand. You have to understand how the P&L works. But also sometimes as the leader, as the best salesman, you got to go door to door and make those $75 house calls with the grease monkey blowing smoke in your face because you need to grow that residual income, especially in a business like payment processing. Can you talk a little bit through the arc of your career? Like where were you playing in the dirt and where were you playing in the clouds for the strategy stuff and the big picture stuff? And like, what was, what was that balance for you of like, Hey, I still need to know what's going on in the trenches and I still need to know how to push the buttons and make the sales. But also now I've got this big boy company. I, I'm responsible for, for plotting the direction of the company. Cause it's kind of weird in, in a big, you know, naval ship, you'd never have the captain working down in the reactor room, but as a business owner, you kind of have to do both. It's hard not to almost. I mean, you know, when I was first starting out, it was just me. So I did everything. So for me, by the time I, it was just kind of one of those things where it was hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, you know? And so there's always going to be, you know, business growth isn't linear, you know, it's not, it's not a straight, you know, upward trend line. It's, 
you know, it looks like the stock market of ups and downs, you know, and so you have times where it's like the demand has gotten really crazy, but I don't actually have enough money coming in to hire help yet. So I've just got to work three days straight, you know, but it's not forever. Right. Because I know this is just a temporary thing because once I get these deals done, I'll have the money to hire somebody to do this work in the future. But you have, you have a lot of these in between moments, you know, but um, you know, so for me personally, by the time, the money was there and the growth had happened enough. I had done all the jobs in the business because I didn't have a choice, you know? And so for me, it was kind of, I was kind of, I was kind of shocked that I was able to actually take my foot off of the gas, you know, but one thing I think a lot of business owners don't do. One of the things that I've always phrased it as, is like, as a business owner, you've got to, you've got to have the time, to work on the business, not in the business. And so when you're, when you're first starting out, you've got to do both, you know? So during the day I was working in the business, I was fielding calls, I was responding to emails, I was working in the business. And then at night I would work on the business. So I would do things like work on the website. I would build marketing campaigns. I would, I would plan out like, okay, you know, here's, here's a email sequence of six emails that I want to send out, but I have to figure out what, you know, technology program I want to use to even send the emails out? Does it have the capability to send it out in the timing that I, that I want to and the cadence that I want to and all this stuff, right? right. So what, ha- what happens a lot, though, is a lot of business owners spend so much time working in the business that they never work on the business. And so they, they just stay in the grind forever. And you can't do that. Um, and then you've got a bunch of people that don't have experience that they think the whole thing is working on the business and not being willing to get in the dirt and work in the business too. And so I think it, you know, when you're first starting out, I think it's about 70% working in the business, about 30% working on it. But then as the business grows and you can hire more people to work in the business for you, then that gives you the capacity to take a step back as the, as the, the visionary and look ahead to more than just like the step at a time. You can plot your course in, in a bigger picture, but you've got to create that space to do that by typically by, by growing revenue. You know, you got to have the money to hire people, period. And that means you've got to more than likely you've got to do the work of making the sale to increase the revenue. And for me, you know, it was very it was beginning to be trendy when I was growing my business to to just set it and forget it to do like the email marketing campaigns and stuff. And one of the things I recommend to a lot of people is, you know, that's growing a business is a combination of hunting and gathering, you know, and a lot of people just want to do the gathering. They want to throw seeds out there, hoping something will grow instead of actually getting down on the ground and hunting something down and going and killing it. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to do that. So, so dangerous right now with social media and email marketing and, and, uh, for, for context, like uh, for context, I coach load officers and I'm always telling them, it's like, Hey, by all means, put the post up there on social media, get the email blast out. Like you need the brand awareness. So people know yeah. Scott Groves, Dallas Skinner name is associated with doing loans, but then you eventually got to pick up the call, pick up the phone and ask for the business, right? You got to build a relationship with the realtor. You got to meet clients. You've got to call past clients and ask them to actually do their loan because if not, it's just hiding. You know, it's, it's hiding behind the brand awareness and the marketing, but you're not actually lead generating for things that are going to put dollars in your pocket. What's so dangerous about it is that it's like a treadmill. You know, it feels like you're doing a lot of work, 
but you're not actually getting anywhere. You yes. wear yourself out doing all that stuff, feeling like you're working. What you're really doing is avoiding going out and doing what you need to be doing, which is grabbing life by the balls and going to make it so happen. Yeah, there's this uh, there's this Ryan Reynolds movie where he's in college and he's like, you know, he's like the elder statesman on the college campus. And uh, he's got this line that's so good. He's like, worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you don't really get anywhere. It's kind of the yeah. same idea as your treadmill analogy where it's like, yeah, you can run all day, but if you don't actually get off the treadmill and or AK make some sales, you're just running in place. You're not actually covering any ground. Yeah. And a lot of, I, see, I, see, I mean, even my own salespeople, I have to tell them that. You know, because they get hooked on calling the same prospects over and over again because those people are nice and they answer the phone. They don't they're not mean to them. Right. And they feel like they're and they and they stay busy all day calling people that aren't ever gonna do business with them, but they're nice. And they feel like they're getting a lot of work done. It's like, dude, you're not getting results. You're playing it safe because you don't want to go out go out and get rejected. You know, like I I mean, I had times where I was out in a suit going door to door. How do you how do you manage that with your your salespeople? Uh, for context, do you guys have an office or are your salespeople remote? A little of both. A little bit of both. So I've, got, I've got five people at home at the office, and then I've got three that are work remote. Okay, got it. So, so how do you manage that? I'll just call it a plague amongst the business world of you know busy versus productive. Um, I got a friend that paid to go one of these super fancy two hundred fifty thousand dollar you know, uh, MBA courses. I can't remember if it was at Stanford or Harvard or something like that. And he's like, dude, he's like the whole th two year or three year executive program that we went through. Cause he would like go on the weekends. He's like the whole thing just boiled down to how do you manage people to say, okay, here, here's a list of a hundred people we got to call. How do you manage against the employee coming back to you or the team member coming back to you and be like, all right, I made my calls. I left a hundred voicemails. It's like, well, Yes, and your your real goal was to sell some shit, not just leave a hundred voicemails. So uh, that person who left the hundred vo voicemails, man, they were busy all day, right? They felt like they crushed it. They earned their eight hours worth of salary or whatnot. But for business owners like yourself and and myself, um, they weren't really productive. Like no sale was made, no relationship was built, no relationship was deepened. So how do you manage against that, or how do you coach to that with people to be like, hey, our job here is we've got to sell stuff and we've got to do that through deepening relationships. Don't spend all day just being busy. I need you to be productive. Do you have KPIs or scorecards or do you sit there and coach them or is it a type of person you hire? Like, how do you manage against that in the business world? Because that that is a plague in the business world. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, for me, I we have a program that we use that has a pipeline management system built in. And so, I have a target as, you know, basically to say, you know, you need to, so I just hired a new guy. And what I told him was, you, you know, you need to have a hundred people in your, in your funnel at all times. Um, and here's how you, and the only way they get out of the, the only way they get out of the funnel is either close the deal or they're disqualified. Um, but they have different stages, you, you know, ideally a, a healthy pipeline right now as a brand new person, they're all at the top of the funnel, but if, but, as you're going on, the way a good funnel looks is about 30% are, you know, targets, you know, about 30% are, you know, active. And then you've got, you know, 20% that are, that are warm. And then you've got 10% that are, you know, closing soon that are in process or whatever. And so it's just, it's just taking an active look at 
you can you can tell if they're actually being productive by the outcomes of movements through their pipeline. You know, if everybody's down at closing soon, but they're not closing any business, then that tells me that that's something I need to, I need to find out what's what's causing that bottleneck. You know, um, and so we have you know you need to have constantly you need to have at least you know thirty of your calls a week need to be to to new people that you haven't talked to before. And we're going to say on that's but that's Tuesday. Tuesdays are for people you've never talked to before. Those are, those are cold call days, you know. And so we try. I try to just make it simple and, and systematize it to say, you know, Tuesday afternoons, that's when you make cold calls. And so do your target list and pick thirty people that you haven't talked to before. Schedule all those for Tuesday afternoon. Knock it out, you know. And so for me, it helps to just make it actionable and break it down into like visualized steps so that you can really sit and look at it. And it helps me manage that, but it also helps them. They know what it's supposed to look. They know if it's right. I'm going to see that. Yeah. I love that. And you know, along the same lines of like what your mission is now becoming or your, your goal or your passion or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, of being, of being a role model, how did that show up for you in your business as you're starting to hire people? Cause I, I, I have a feeling that, your business was probably successful and you've replaced yourself and you don't need to be involved in the day-to-day being effectively retired because you were a good role model and people could, you know, um, look to you for how they should act. And then that's really the only way high level people in a business replace themselves. So can you talk a little bit about being a role model within work and, and how that works with building relationships or any secrets you took away from being a professional role model? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think this could apply to, you know, being a husband. I think it could apply to being a coach or a teacher or whatever, right? It's like we've all, as men, we've been underneath the authority of other people our whole lives. We, You know, when we were young, it was our parents. You know, as we were older, we were underneath the authority of teachers and coaches. You know, college, we had professors. And then, we, you know, we get out of the business where we have bosses. You know, out of, out of all those people that we've been underneath their authority, two or three have usually been really good at it. Right. And we would, and as people that had to submit to them, we would have taken a bullet for them. Right. Because they were real. They were authentic. They, they weren't hypocrites. They weren't entitled. They, they weren't condescending. You know, they, they were tough, but they were fair. You know, and, uh, and so for me, I think part of the, part of the reason my people, I don't really have to worry about a lot of the things that other people have to worry about in business with my people because they don't want to disappoint me, you know, because they've seen me because I don't act like their boss all the time. You know, I'm not authoritarian. I'm not tyrannical. I don't micromanage them. Um, I treat them like human beings. And so when I do put my foot down about something, they know it's valid. You know what I mean? I don't waste my authority on pit, on pit you know, pity shit that a lot of people do. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of leaders are bad leaders because they've used their authority um, and for me, you know, once a year, I actually have to go put my foot down and say, I'm, I'm the boss. The rest of the time, I just treat them like human beings. And they see that I'm, you know, I, I'm never asking them to do something I'm not willing to do myself. Yeah, man, I, I love I love that quote of you don't waste your authority on petty stuff. Right. So that when when you do have to come in and be like, hey, 
for whatever reason. I know better, or this is my reputation on the line, or this is my money. Um, you, you're just going to do things my way. Like now, now we've moved over from supportive leader to this is a dictatorship because this is my company. Um, can you give us an example of the most important things that come in once in a while where you have to shift from that, hey, we're in this together, I'm a mentor, I'm a coach, to, all right, I, I don't waste my authority on the petty stuff, but this is the thing where I'm going to make a command decision and I'm the captain now. Yeah. Most of the time, that's when I give people a lot of rope and let them fail a lot and let them be lazy for a little longer than I probably should. Mm -hmm. Because then when I come in and I, and I put my foot down, they know it's legit versus like a lot of business, a lot of leaders. It's like, I've worked a hundred hours a week and you should too. And anything short of that is unacceptable. And it's like, dude, get off your high horse, man. Like just because you did it doesn't mean they should have to. You're the owner. Yeah. You're the one keeping all the money. You shouldn't expect these people to work as hard as you do. You're making way more money than them. Expecting them to care about the business as much as you do is completely unrealistic and unfair. Right. Ridiculous. You know, so they know I'm, I'm, I'm not tyrannical like that. So I give them a lot of rope and I give them chances to do it without me having to be that way. And by the time I do that, I don't have to be authoritarian. I just have to tell them, Hey man, like if you were me and you saw somebody that didn't make any sales calls for two weeks, what would you think about that? And they'll usually, and then almost, it doesn't matter if it's a guy or a girl, almost every time they start crying. I'm sorry to disappoint you, man. I'm so sorry. You've, you've been so good to me, you know? And so it's just, it's more of just reminding them of what's expected, but, but it's also, I know what they expect of themselves. It's not me saying, here's what I expected. Right. It's, I know what you want out of this job. I know what you, what kind of person you are and what you're doing right now is not aligning with it. And if you were me, I think you would feel the same way that you're feeling taken advantage of. You know, just because I'm not in here micromanaging you all day long doesn't mean I should have to. Like, you know, and, and so that's the biggest thing. That's usually when I when I do come down hard is is for things like that when they don't do what they know they should be doing. But it doesn't happen very often for, because I don't pull that card very often. I mean, after after I have that conversation with somebody. And I'm still, and I still give them grace. I'm like, listen, I know sales sucks, you know, because usually it happens after one of my salespeople loses a really loses a deal that they got really attached to. Yeah, a deal falls through or something, you know, and it's like, oh, man, it's a gut punch. It's hard to immediately back on the sign up for more punishment, you know. So I don't, I don't crack the whip on them. I've been there, and I tell them that, you know. But but then I also tell them, while I understand what that feels like and it's normal to be discouraged. I can't let you sit and not get back on the horse for six months. Right. You know, I've given you, I've given you two weeks to kind of catch your breath. I get it, but don't think that just because I'm not being a dick doesn't mean that I don't know what's going on right now. Right. And at the end of the Stop. day, there's, there's a business to run and bad thing, uh, bad things happen to good businesses that don't make sales. Absolutely. You know, but I think it's just a mixture of that humanity you know, and not forgetting what it's like to be, to be them. I think whether it's as a husband or as, you know, it's easy as a dad to forget what it was like to be a kid and just be authoritarian. You know, and I think that a lot of men have a really, do a really bad job 
bad job remembering what it was like when you were the employee and not the boss. Yeah. And if you didn't want somebody to treat you that way, if you didn't respond well to being treated that way when you were on the receiving end of it, then you damn sure don't need to be to be that way when you're on the giving end. Totally, man. The the remembering what it was like, um, luckily I don't think any of the parents at my kids' school listen to this podcast and it'll be years before my son goes back and watches the archive. So I can say this on this podcast. Uh, my son's been having some real challenges at school. They're in an acting academy, which for the first couple months, it's like Lord of the flies. You know, the kids are, the kids are running themselves and they're organizing the classroom and they're coming up with their own constitution. And he's really been having some problems with a couple of the older boys in the, in the class who, you know, my, my son is not a saint, so I'm sure he is taunting them, and he's equally as much of the problem. But there's been a few times where he's gotten these strikes because uh, it resorts to something physical. You know, they throw a rock at each other or they start scratching each other or whatever. So I went to the school to give a presentation on what it is I do for a living. They interview like a parent every week. And, you know, on the home front, when I get these notices that my kid's not being a saint and he's not acting right and he's, you know, resorting to some physical violence to solve his problem, I just want to lay into him, right? And then I'm like, all right, he's a six-year-old. Like, we've got, some, we've got some lessons to learn here. Well, in the 20 minutes that I was in the classroom, I wanted to kill all those kids because they, they were exactly. frustrating me and they weren't paying attention. They were throwing shoes at each other and stuff. And I was like, like I, I almost wanted to sit down all the kids just by their throat, my son included, yeah. and be like, sit still, get on your butt. This is the military. You're going to do it my way. And so it was really an eye-opener of like at 43, 40, whatever, 43 years old, if I was having that reaction over 20 minutes, I can only imagine what the kids are feeling towards each other and, and why they're getting strikes and it's turning into physical tussles and stuff like that. And I was like, all right, all right, take a, take a breather. I don't remember exactly what it was like at six years old, but just observing that, I've kind of got a clue of how rough it is to be in that environment all day and, and, and keep well, your cool. And a lot of us as men would be way better dads, way better husbands, way better bosses if we just took a half second before we just have that gut reaction of like, this is my way or the highway and said, hold on a second. If it was me, why might I be doing this or how would it feel? You know? Like, yes. Just, and, and that doesn't mean, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, that's soft. It's like, no, you can still be hard after you think about that. Right. You know what I mean? Like if you think about it and it's justifiable to be a hard ass about it, then by all means, be a hard ass. I'm not saying be afraid to be a hard ass. Maybe that's not always the best approach. And make sure if you take that approach that it is the most likely to get the result you, you want. Yeah. Not just because it makes you feel manly. Right. <laughs> you know? there, there's, an, there's an ongoing debate about this in a father's group I'm part of. Shout out to John Roman and Front Row Dads. Um, about corporal punishment, right? Do you spank your kids? Do you hit your kids? Whatever. And, and... I think the jury's kind of out on this as whether it's good or bad or whatnot. But one of the fathers said, hey, let me just ask you a question. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. But if you can answer the question in the moment that you're spanking a child or hitting a child, was I in control or was the kid in control? You know, was I in control? Did I ask myself the question? Was I like, hey, this, this slight against mom or humanity or their sibling did it justify a physical response and what is I in control and was there a lesson to teach there or was I just angry and I was the bigger human being so I hit them in anger because I was out of control 
And I was like, oh, that's that's a really good question. Shout out to Les, who we have to have on the podcast. That was a really good question because I was like, yeah, that I mean, that's kind of the way to think about everything. Was I triggered and I was was I was out of control and I was allowing that other person to control my emotions or maybe even what I did physically? Or was I in control and I know this was part of the growth process and the lesson and man to man or man to child or man to daughter, whatever. Um, and I, I still don't know the right answer, but I know that's a damn good question to be asking myself in those moments. Yeah. Hey. And I, what I love about that is that that's what real life is like. It's like, at least we're thinking about it. You know, I don't know the right answer, but it's something I'm trying to figure out. I mean, that's where learning and growth happens, right? Like I live, I live in that place right there. Like, I don't know for sure I'm right about this, but I'm, it's worth considering and taking some time to re reflect on. I love it. And that's, you know, I want to ask a follow-up question something you said like almost half an hour ago, but I wrote it down. You know, you were talking about having, especially as a man, your identity wrapped up in, you know, hey, I'm I'm Ryan the baseball player or I'm Ryan the, the business owner or I'm, you know, Ryan the, the Boy Scout leader or whatever it is, people are super passionate and they, they're, they're really deep into their life. How that can be a challenge when you're no longer that thing or you're no longer hitting the goal or you're no longer in the prime of your athletic career at 28 years old. Um, so I'm trying to balance two thoughts of like, how do we guard against, especially being men, wrapping our whole identity up in this thing that we are, you know, um, or this thing that we aspire to be versus the other idea of like, hey, sometimes to be great at something, you have to be all in on that uh, on that identity, right? I mean, I'm guessing your friend who was even like a uh, an a I don't want to say bench warmer, but like an entry level major league baseball player. He wasn't a superstar. I'm sure for ten years his whole identity was, you know, I'm Scott the pitcher. Like this is what I have to do to be in shape and have the mental game and travel and be away from my family and try to earn a living for myself doing this pitching gig, like. Do you have any thought on those two? Uh, because there are two really conflicting thoughts in me that I think are maybe both right. Like, hey, we got to guard about yeah, that against yeah. that so we don't have just mental destruction when we're no longer the best at that thing. And anybody that's ever become great at anything was just obsessed and passionate about it, and that was their identity. Absolutely. You're, I mean, we could talk for a whole podcast, you know, but one of the things that just comes to mind for me is, like, you know, the difference between – ambition and aspiration you know the difference between like what do you want to accomplish and that's what most men spend all their time doing but then men also need to be, be asking themselves with this question like who do i want to be what do i want other people to say about me and that's where for me i think you can have those external drivers but you also need to need to know who you are as a man, like, are you a man of honor? Are you a man of integrity? Do you keep your word? Have you been faithful to the, to the things in life that you need to be faithful to, you know, are you showing up as a dad? Are you showing up as a husband the way you need to? Um, are you showing up as a friend is the way you do business? If everybody found out about the way you conduct yourself in business, if everybody found out about that, would you be proud of that or ashamed? You know? And so I think to me, the balance, and I don't know that I'm right, but I think it's important. I think a lot of men spend a lot of time on the external, which we have to as men. As men, we're we're judged by what we accomplish, what we provide. You know, that's just never going to change. You know, Chris Rock had that quote. You know, only only women and only women, children, and dogs are loved unconditionally. Right. You know, men are totally. loved unconditionally. 
and that's and that's just reality, you know. And a lot of guys, you know, get upset about that. It's like, man, I'm a dude too. It is what it is. Let's just let's, let's learn how to do something, right? Like let's be let's be productive. Let's accomplish something, you know. Um, and so it's easy to get wrapped up in the externals, um, but at the same time, you, for me, it's really helped having that fallback of like, no matter what happens, if I know who I am. I know I've conducted myself with with integrity. I know that I've done things the right way. I know that if people knew the truth about how I treated my wife or treated my kids or, you know, treated my customers or treated my employees. I know that I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I'm proud of how I, how I've conducted myself. And so that would be the advice I would give to a lot of men is, you know, while you're being ambitious about what you go out and achieve, I'm all for that, but don't, don't do it at the expense of who you want to become. And very few men have asked themselves that question. Like at the end of your life, what, what do you want people to say about you on who you were as a man beyond just things that you bought or achieved? You know, were you a good man? Were you an honorable man? So and that's do, what's going to stay with you. Do you think having those aspirations of, you know, let's say all of a sudden I quit all my other businesses and, and things that I was spending time on. And I'm like, you know what? I'm all in. I have ambitions of being the next Joe Rogan. I'm going to put, all of my work time towards building the podcast. And my ambition is to be Scott Groves, the world famous podcaster, which by the way, not my ambition. Um, could that be balanced? Cause you know, work is never done, right? You, you could, you could, you could miss every child sporting event and anniversaries with your wife. Cause there's a new email function we're trying to figure out or somebody's doing it better than me. So I'm going to watch 200 hours of their podcast to see how they're doing it. Well, um, is, is it that, you know, aspiration of, hey, I still want to be a good husband. I still want to be a good father. Is that what tempers that ambition of, hey, maybe I can be the world's best podcaster or the best podcaster I can be and still make time to be present for my kids and my wife? Like, like is, is that how you balance it in, in your humble opinion? I think so. You know, I mean, I think one question I think a lot of men need to ask themselves is, you know, at what point will, will it be enough? whatever it is, at what point will you say I've done enough? Right. And there's nothing wrong with ambition, but like, like Tom Brady is a great example, right? Like he just, he retired last year and then unretired and his, him and Gisela, no, I saw yesterday are filing for divorce because she was the one that wanted him to retire because it was time for, she put her career on hold so he could play football. And that was kind of a deal that they made is that he would retire last year so that he could spend more time with the family and she could focus on her career. And he backed out of it. Now he's getting a divorce. And like, that's an example of a guy that's like, man, you, you, you can't, you obviously can't give it up. It's it, you're too attached to it now. And for an extra, for one extra year of football, it's not going to cost you your marriage and the time you probably are going to have with your kids and no telling how much money and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're, he's probably really going to regret that when he's 60. Yeah, you're yeah. already the greatest of all time. You really yeah. needed to play one more season. And, you know, um, yeah, you know, the thing with Tom Brady is it's like we never know what's going on in the inner workings of their marriage. And maybe they were they were destined for divorce. But, yeah, I think his ambition of just one more season, just a couple more touchdowns, just a couple more records might have totally destroyed his aspirations of being a good family man. And that's that's hard to watch from the outside looking in. Cause like I said, it's like, 
I hate Tom Brady because he knocked my Steelers out of the playoffs so many times. But I'm like, you're clearly the best who ever lived. Like, what is one more season going to prove? What is one more zero when you're already a billionaire? What is going to prove? You know, one more car, one more jet. Or, you know, thinking at, at, a, at a lower level for people that are making seventy dollars or $80,000, and that's kind of the best they can do. Like, a, a, a brand new Honda Civic versus a five-year-old Honda Civic, it's not going to change your life for the better. And I, I don't know why we as men can't figure that out earlier in life. Well, we just won't listen, man. I mean, it's like, dude, if you've, if you've read the Bible, Solomon talks about this in Ecclesiastes. You know, it's like everything is vanity. He was the richest dude in the world. He had a hundred wives and it was like, man, it, it was all, it was all meaningless at the, at, the, at the end. That wasn't what really mattered, you know? And then you think about, even if disregard the Bible, you think about movies like Citizen Kane, it's the same story. You think about, you know, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens wrote a book about it where it's like, it's not, that's not what it's about. You know, like men have been screaming this. It's not just my opinion. Like we watch it play out in real time yesterday with Tom Brady and Solomon said it for 4,000 years ago. And, you know, Charles Dickens said it two, 200 years ago. And I mean, it's like at some point men just have to realize like the rules apply to you too, you know? And right. I, feel, I mean, like it, it they're, you, you can't escape it. Like trying to fill a void in, in who you are with more of whatever, more Super Bowls, more money, more podcast listeners, whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're, it, it, it depends on your why, you know, is it, is it, are you trying to fill a hole that something else needs to be filling with these externals? Because if so, it's never going to be filled. It's just like eating. You're not going to eat once and be full forever. You're just going to have to fill it again. It's never going to be enough. It doesn't work that way. And men just won't listen until, until it's too late, you know, and, and some men do not, not every man, but there's still enough that don't. And, you know, for me, so to answer that question, it's like, I went into my business going into it with kind of a target in mind. And it's like, I had this idea that it's like, you know, if I made about $400,000 a year, every year for the rest of my life, that would give me the life I wanted. What, what, what would be the dip, like the difference in my lifestyle between $400,000 a year and $500,000 a year. And in that extra hundred thousand dollars a year, whatever it costs me to earn that, is it worth what I have to sacrifice in the other parts of my life? Because everything has a cost. So what's a law of the universe for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Like no new energy is created. It's all just the same energy recycling all the time, right? Like every every dollar you make costs you something else. It's you can't you can't have both. You know, now some of us are just more gifted that you know Gary V can spend an hour working and make a million dollars. Whereas for me, I can spend an hour working and make ten thousand dollars. And some of you know, that's where talent comes in. And some people just have more talent, you know, but I think that's really important for men to ask themselves, like, is the extra you're still striving for worth the cost of missing your daughter's swim meet? Is it really making, and, and if it's the difference between eating and not eating, yes, it's worth that cost. Absolutely. Miss your daughter's swim meet. you got to feed your family. But if it's just bragging rights over your buddy on who has a bigger boat, is that really worth it? And you ask men if when you when you and when you phrase it that way to a dude, a dude a hundred percent of the time says no. Heck no, it's not worth it. But they do it. 
all the time. Because we, like, we don't think about it like that. So true, man. Everything you just said there, I feel, could prompt other questions that could send us down a three-hour podcast. But uh, now that I know you come out to Vegas a fair amount, next time you're in Vegas or L.A., we've got to do one of these in person because I've, I've enjoyed the conversation so much. I took a page of notes, and I wrote, like, 10 follow-up questions we didn't get to. Uh, but I do got to end with these three questions. Usually it's two, but because you have all the books behind you, we got to end with three books. And the questions are this. Um, you know, what are you looking for? We're, we're filming this towards the end of 2022. You know, what's in focus for you going into 2023? What are you excited about? Uh, and then favorite book and favorite movie. I always ask favorite movie, but you've got a library behind you. So feel free to feel, you know, favorite book, favorite movie, or what's in focus for you going into 2023. Uh, 2023, I want to get a better, um, want to build the infrastructure behind what I'm doing on Instagram right now, you know, get the book written, um, start, started podcast or, or something, you know, my, my followers are asking for more and I just don't have the capacity to do more than write on Instagram. I have to hire help. So that's my focus is expanding, you know, just the influence of what I'm trying to get across and messages like what you and I are talking about. I think those are, these are, every man needs to be hearing men have conversations like this yeah for sure important, important to have um, favorite movie i would have to say casino royale the james bond movie i don't really know why i just love phenomenal movie i just something about all the different settings you know it goes from like um, the caribbean to venice to montenegro and just i don't know something about that movie is just everything about it. I just love that movie. It's, it's classic. It has a classic feel like a nostalgic feel like it's something from like the seventies, Yeah, but it's actually newer. You know, I just, it's the perfect movie to me. I love that movie. I, I know that there's, a, I know that there's a recency bias and movies have gotten bigger and grander and more fun, but Daniel Craig just feels like the perfect James Bond. He's like oh, yeah. the right amount of authentic, but snarky, um, super good looking and buff, but not to the point where I feel like I couldn't have gotten there in my twenties or thirties. But, um, yeah, I just, I think he's a perfect James Bond. And then obviously you're a voracious reader. So, uh, do you have a, uh, do you have a favorite book? Oh man, that would be, I have, I have a very hard time not having recency bias when it comes to books. I agree. Very much, very much. It has, you know, but I would say, Probably the classics would just be the Lord, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, I read that for the first time when I was in fifth grade. And, uh, my dad, actually, the only book my dad ever read me was The Hobbit. I remember him reading that to me as a kid. So I've always been partial, I think, to the fantasy, you know, swords and castles and medieval stuff. And that's even kind of the theme of a lot of my stuff on Instagram is that medieval period. I love it, man. I love it, and uh, if you haven't read it yet, there's a book series called the Joe Ledger series. I, I was oh, I love the Joe Ledger. Oh, okay, cool. This you're right because I saw Code Zero. I called I saw Code Zero back there. I'm like, Patient Zero is one of my favorite books. Um, yeah. But yeah, Joe Ledger is like if Jason Bourne met the X Files or something, and I just, oh, bro, I just think it's love, such a I've read that, yeah, such I've a cool genre. Three times. Yeah, I love it. I love that. I have that on my phone, and so I'll just read that like while I'm in between sets at the gym. And it's just a really fun, entertaining read. Yeah, I love the Joe Ledger series. My son actually is a big fan of his children's novels. He's got he's got some young adult novels that are about like a post apocalyptic zombie sort of thing. All right, I'm gonna have to ate him up. 
I've got a couple of years and then I can check those out with Gabriel. So, hey, man, I, Ryan, I really appreciate you being on. Like I said, I think we could talk for hours about stuff we're aligned on, questions you're bringing up in my head. But uh, the next one we got to do in person over a beer. So next time you're yeah. in L.A. or Vegas, let me know so we can uh, we can schedule a follow-up one of these. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. Cool, man. Talk soon.